You are listening to The Real Faith Stories Podcast. Interviews with people who chose to boldly follow their faith. I'm your host, Brian Robinson. Now, let's meet our guests and hear their story. Michael, welcome to Real Faith Stories. It is an honor to have you on the program today. Well, it's an honor to join you. Thanks for inviting me. Well, there is so much I want to chat with you about, but let's first start with your backstory. Please share how you came to faith, and then let's dig into an amazing series of God-ordained events that led you out of the world of finance into the role of becoming a pastor. First, just a little bit of background. I didn't uh, grow up going to church and wasn't interested at all in the things of God. And really, the Christians that I saw seemed to be just kind of Debbie Downers. And I thought that to be a reflection of God. He was kind of the cosmic party pooper, and I liked to party, so that didn't really work out. <laughs> and uh, and then, as it turns out, God has His ways. He picked one of my partying buddies to invite me to church. I was 17 years old, and in that church service, for the first time in my life, I encountered God. And it was it was a Pentecostal church. It was honestly a little Pentecostal crazy. And that led to a whole different part of my journey we can get to later. But the Holy Spirit was present, and powerfully so. And in fact, so powerfully that, and this was during the worship segment, I I was completely caught off guard and not expecting it. I was maybe expecting to, at best, meet a cute girl, at worst, maybe mock what was happening. Mm-hmm. But I, when the worship music began, it was like the Holy Spirit just rushed upon me. And I was so overwhelmed with joy that I told myself, God is so much better than everything else I've been living for. I just want to live for him for the rest of my life. And so I, I dedicated my life to Jesus that night, drove straight to my atheist friend Lance's house and share the gospel with him. And he's, he's like, what are you going to do about all the other stuff you're doing? And I said, I'll stop it. And I did, and not perfectly, mm-hmm. uh, but really the big stuff dropped off right away. And then it, it's really just been a lifelong journey, stuff continuing to drop off and as well as add. And I think that's part of that crucifixion, resurrection lifestyle. I think we make Jesus Lord when we get saved, but we also, over the course of our whole lives, make him more Lord over our lives. Mm. And uh, of course, he already is the Lord, objectively speaking, but speaking in terms of our subjective experience. And so, man, that changed everything and and went to college at the University of Texas and, and got a finance degree, actually, and, and felt a call into ministry. And that's where the seminary portion begins to come into play. I'm curious, after you got your finance degree, then you decided you're going to go to seminary. So was it in your senior year of college that you had this sense of calling to get into seminary? Great question. So I always thought it was a possibility. And I come from a family. My dad was a banker. I chose finance just because it was a versatile degree. I could do lots with it. And UT had one of the top business schools in the nation. And so it, it was toward the end that I started to, I was probably about 21, graduated at 22, that I started to feel like for sure, for sure, for sure, ministry was my life calling. And so by that point, it was like, okay, I could change colleges and go get a Bible undergrad degree, or I could get a religion degree at UT, which is useless at a pagan university. Uh, Or I could go ahead and finish this out. And, And as it turns out, it was the right thing, right choice to finish out the degree because of just the way that started to open up doors for me. But to answer your question, it was 
it was late enough in the game that it, it seemed wise to go ahead and finish. Mm-hmm. So what kind of doors did this finance degree open for you? Yeah, well, it, it led to my first job, which led me to move where I did, which led to a really key mentorship, which led to where I am today, 20 years later. So there's the quick succession of dominoes there. Yeah, you had this obviously a sense of direction to get into seminary. That's what you do, right? If you're going to get into ministry. But God had a little different plan. Absolutely. Preachers go to preacher school, right? And so that seemed to make the most sense to me. And and that was the plan. And not just that, I actually really love to study. And this kind of weird personality that I'm very extroverted, but at the same time, I really could just put me, give me a few books, maybe a stack of them, and I could read all day for a week straight without talking to people and be happy to. <laughs> like, I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, eventually I would want to talk to people about what I was reading, but you, you catch my drift. I really love to study. So, so there was that element to it also. So my senior year in college, I was engaged to be married and I started traveling around the nation to different seminaries, exploring which one that I might go to right after I graduate college. And my future wife, who now is my wife. Mm-hmm. We've been married uh, for almost 18 years, have four kids, and we were set to be married right after I graduated in 04. And so she went on a couple of the trips with me because she was going to be moving there too and went to Chicago and went to Boston and Louisville and of course visited Fort Worth and Dallas, which was close to home for us because mm-hmm. that's where our folks were from. And so, and, and then just explored lots every time we went and every time we we explored something. We just kept feeling like we didn't have the Lord's peace on it. And it was starting to get a little late in the game. We were to be married June 5th of that year. I was graduating kind of toward the end of May with my degree. And and I didn't have a job yet. I didn't have a course yet. Didn't know we were going to live yet. I'm sure my father-in-law was kind of like, get with the program, man. <laughs> yeah. And so after all the research was done and my wife-to-be, Alicia and I, we were praying. And And at this point, maybe I could pause in the story. Mm -hmm. I was new to hearing the voice of God. To come back to the Pentecostal thing, as I started reading my Bible, while they were genuine people who loved Jesus, their expression of the gifts of the Holy Spirit was honestly out of the bounds of Scripture. It, It was enough to, when I got to college, push me in the opposite direction. In fact, I became a cessationist, believing that certain gifts of the Holy Spirit, like prophecy, healing, and tongues, and so on, ceased. And to be quite honest, that was a comfortable position for me because prophecy endangered the authority of scripture. Tongues was just weird and and healing, you know, nobody sees that. So that that was kind of where I came to. And around 21, fell in love with my wife, Alicia, actually met in Scotland on a study abroad, but, but fell in love. And she waited till after I fell in love with her to confess to me this, that she spoke in tongues. Oh and no. So yeah, I was like, oh no, this is this is terrible. <laughs> but what it did is actually forced me. I love to study the word. It mm. forced me to the word and it, and and also to reading. And I, I read some books by a guy named Jack Deere. One was called Surprised by the Voice of God, another Surprised by the Power of the Spirit. And and then he had a, a book about prophecy. And I read all three of them gobbled them up. And and I was just so impressed that Jack had been this theologian from Dallas Theological Seminary that came into the gifts and he had real stories of actual healings and and just miracles and prophecy. And I, one, the stories just convinced me this is happening today. But two, the way he brought together the power of God's word and the power of God's spirit 
given my prior experience at the Pentecostal church, I thought the two had to be separated. And I had grown so much at my Southern Baptist church in college. I thought, okay, the word's the way to go. And, and so now this sort of brought me back full circle. And to be quite honest, I think this is part of why we were unsettled on the seminary thing. I, I was exploring so much. I, and some of the seminaries I went to had real strong doctrinal statements about this stuff not happening. Some, mm-hmm. some were more open, but I think all of that contributed. And and so here, that kind of, I'll say this too, while I was reading Jack's books, I said this little prayer that one day God would let me be mentored by him. And so it was a kind of crazy prayer because Jack, as far as his books were concerned, it sounded like he lived in Montana and I was in Austin. So it didn't seem like that connection could be. So now fast forward to our prayer. All of that's in the background. We don't know what our future holds. I'm playing roulette over which seminary I'm going to go to. Okay, I guess that one. Oh, yeah. And so we're praying, and I'm new at this practice of hearing the voice of God and believing he actually speaks today by his spirit. But for Alicia, it's old hat. She'd, she'd been used to it. And so we pray, we pause. I say, okay, what do you feel like God's saying? She said, you go first. I said, <laughs> I don't like the answer. I, th- I said, I think God just told me, go get a job. And she said, I, I'm glad he told you that because I felt like he said the same thing. And I didn't want to be the the bearer of bad news, but go get a job, meant go to get a job and don't go to seminary at this point. Wow. I don't believe it was like a forever command to never go to seminary, mm-hmm. but at least at that moment it was. And for me, it was a leap of faith because what I wanted to do with all my heart was to teach the Bible and pastor people. And it felt like I had to put that on the altar, put on the altar my love for learning, put on the altar, the open potential doors to ministry and trust God to somehow lead me there and instead go into a career finance that I honestly wasn't passionate about at all. I got married on a Saturday, as people do. And on Thursday, I had my job interview and it was a a grueling, almost all day interview and ended up getting the job. But I remember reading the job description and thinking, this sounds terrible, <laughs> but I need money. Uh, I ended up getting the job and that moved me to the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I moved to the area in just that summer. And as it turned out, Jack Deere had just started a church on the north side of Fort Worth called Wellspring Church. Wow. And so a connection was beginning to form in the providence of the Lord. I, I went to his church. We became members and he had this school of the spirit is what he called it. And he taught about all the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but with all of his theological expertise as well as his practical experience. And Jack and I formed a friendship in that in that time frame. Then he hired me as his youth pastor. That was after about a year. Mm-hmm. And so I was a financial analyst for a year, but then made a shift. I told Jack, I don't have a seminary degree. And he said, doesn't matter. I'll teach you everything uh, you need to know, and I'll leave out the useless stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so Jack had been a seminary professor for, you know, I mean, for all of his life until he came into the gifts of the, the spirit and got fired by a seminary for believing in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So I, I see just in the providence of the Lord, a poetry to the way the Lord wrote my story and that he, he asked me to lay down that seminary degree. And when I took that step of faith, he in turn brought me a seminary professor to personally disciple me. And so Jack poured into me. And I mean, he's still a spiritual father to me. I, I still reach out to him regularly and him to me. We see each other, still travel together some. And, but I was a youth pastor at his church for five years, then an executive pastor after that for a couple more. And then when he retired in 2012, 
I took over, or 2011, I took over as the senior pastor. And that's what I was for the next 10 years, the senior pastor at Wellspring Church in North Richland Hills, which is just north of Fort Worth. Mm-hmm. And and then I took another step of faith. And now here I am in Oklahoma City. So there's the story. <laughs> I want to circle back on that prayer you had with your wife about what to do. And you felt like the Lord said, get a job. And then she confirmed that. Can you recall what that felt like at that moment when you realized, I really do need to make a shift in what I'm pursuing right now? Yeah, it was a little scary. And I'll be honest, it was disappointing. I really didn't like the answer. So it was scary because I didn't know how I was going to get into ministry. At that time, it seemed like, okay, do I do this for two years, for five years, for 10 years? This Mm -hmm. feels like a waste of time. But, you know, another mentor figure at that time, he spoke with me and kind of comforted me. And and he said, time is all the Lord's. The Lord could give you an extra 20 years of life or, you know, your time could come sooner than that. You don't know, but you just have to say yes to Jesus now. That was comforting that my time is completely in his hands. Of course, I knew that, but it's I think we need believers to sort of remind us of the things we already know. I love, Michael, that you were introduced to things of the Spirit when your wife confessed that she spoke in tongues, and then you started reading these Jack Deere books, and this heart prayer, I'd love to be mentored by this guy, and here you are. It's just, Mm -hmm. it's incredible. It is. And the prayer of of mentorship, for that mentorship, it was it's a huge deal. I mean, Jack had been discipled by John Wimber, who in the 1980s and 90s was kind of the most loved and hated man in the world on some level. I mean, he, at least in the Christian world, because he shook things up in the way he brought the power of the Spirit, but he was also a theologically minded man. And so Jack just had some incredible experiences. He'd seen blind eyes open, deaf ears open, possibly one resurrection from the dead. They just didn't have it medically documented. I mean, he'd seen incredible things, but he also understood how to administer the gifts of the Spirit in a pastoral setting. And that's one of the most common, probably the most common question I am asked. It's it's by church leaders. Yeah, I believe in the stuff, but how do I do it mm-hmm. in a church setting? It's just, we, we got preaching and we got worship and we, ha- we have offering and we, we have these different parts of the liturgy, but... At what point in this well-controlled liturgy down to the minute do we say, Holy Spirit, do your thing? What if that thing that he wants to do is kind of weird or silly or out of the box or it takes too long and people start to get hungry and want to go to lunch? And so pastors, they just want to know how to administer it as as well as how to actually raise up prophetic people and, and how to train people in healing. There's a lot of theology that goes with that. There's a lot of practice that goes with that. But I'm asked this question all the time. Hmm. And I was very closely shown how to do this over the course of many years from one of the most experienced people in it on the planet, who also happened to be a theologian and was simultaneously teaching me how to exegete scripture and exposit before a congregation in a way that moved both their minds and their hearts. And and so it, it was a phenomenal experience. And honestly, that whole season, which led into being the senior pastor of a church for 10 years, and then to, to where I am now in Oklahoma City, following in the, in the footsteps of Sam Storms, there's another connection. Mm-hmm. Jack Deere was the one who brought Sam into the belief of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And, and Sam himself is uh, a theologian, who practices the gifts, pastors of church, writes books about it. There's a symmetry there as yeah. well that I, I succeeded Jack Deere at Wellspring, and now I'm 
soon to succeed Sam Storms at Bridgeway. Again, the Lord, the Lord is the author of our stories. All of our days are written in his book before any of them came to be. And, and he really is a poet. And I think we start to see these when we develop a prophetic perspective on our history. And, and I think we see that in the life of Joseph. He's able to look back at his life and see God's purpose in the slavery and in the being sold by his brothers, all the hardships he suffered. And he says, well, it wasn't you who sold me. It was God who, who handed me over, but he'd raised me up for the saving of many lives. And I think we're Christians. We need that ability to reflect on our past with a prophetic perspective and start to see God's hand in it. And the more you start to see God's providential hand in the past, the more you can trust him for the future. I love that statement that your mentor shared with you that time is God's. I can see that in my own personal life, how God has compressed certain things and then seasons where I thought things would happen quickly wound up being 10 plus years. And then finally, yeah. what do you say to people that are listening to this and they're thinking, yeah, I wish things would happen a heck of a lot faster here, but they're just grinding slowly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, a few things. First of all, I think so much of life comes down to friendship with God and friendship with others. And the thing about friendship is friends are friends because they enjoy one another. Like that's what, that is what is central is they just enjoy being together. And I think that with God, a question we have to ask ourselves is, can I enjoy Jesus today? Don't get so stuck in waiting for this hope or dream to come to pass that you can't just enjoy Jesus today. The Psalm says, Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. We tend to delight in our desires, but not the Lord. <laughs> That's really good. The delight has to come now if we want those desires to come to pass. And there is an important work that he is doing in the season of waiting. And I say friendship with others because I, I really think that our joy in Jesus has a cap on it. And that cap is our joy and friendship with other people. If I'm just sort of a lone ranger over here, I'm not really a friend of Jesus because Jesus shows us what friendship looks like. And he, he's the only one who did who could have done ministry alone. And he chose 12 friends to do ministry closely with. And then three even closer, Peter, James, and John. And then his best friend was John, the beloved disciple. And so that's Jesus's model of what friendship with God is supposed to look like. And, and they have all kinds of studies that doesn't matter how much you have, doesn't matter your IQ, doesn't matter what you've achieved. The quality of your relationships is really going to say how determined your, your happiness level. Mm. And, and so if you're walking in close friendship with Jesus and one another, that's what's going to really help you enjoy today. One thing that helped me, because in the midst of of that, and that was 17 years of being with Jack and then and becoming the senior pastor, there was a lot of hardship in there. Mm. And we can get into that if you want. But it, even in that, it, it wasn't like, okay, cool, I only waited a year and now we're all good. It, it was probably about 15 years of or 14 years of some real hardship and and continuing. Yes, God got me into ministry, but... I, I reminded myself during that season of uh, there's a verse in the book of Lamentations. I think it's chapter three that says it's good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. And I reminded myself in the midst of hardship that the yoke was good for me. Hardship was good for me because it's preparing me for what I what I will one day be. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to be a Mark Driscoll pastor who got elevated to the highest heights in his twenties. I don't think I had a strong enough heart or character 
or spiritual life to sustain that. And I think few people do. King David was anointed at probably around age 17 to be the next king. And it wasn't until he was 30 that it actually came to pass. And you, and that's a pattern for the people of God. Moses needed 40 years in the wilderness. Before that, he tried to be the deliverer, killed an Egyptian in the process. It's like he sensed something about his calling. He's called to be a deliverer. But it wasn't until after the hardship that he actually was uh, gained the humility that he needed. Same with Joseph, whom I already mentioned. This is God's process for raising people up. And, and so whatever it is, that desire of your heart, delight yourself in the Lord now. Just love Jesus today and love Jesus's people today and be with them. And to whatever degree you're having to bear the yoke, just receive it from the Lord's hand as part of your preparation for what's to come. Yeah, I can totally bear witness to that in my own journey. One of the things that you mentioned, Michael, is that in this friendship with Jesus, he calls us to take risks and to lay things down. Share some of the risks that God has called you to take over the years. What springs to mind? A couple of them, please. Sure. I mentioned the risk about not going to seminary, and that, of course, paid off. And, of course, then there was a risk of leaving my old job that was pretty financially wonderful as a financial analyst and going into the ministry. And then there was the risk of becoming a senior pastor at my last church, at Wellspring Church. And this touches on some of the hardship. So Jack is a spiritual father to me, a beloved mentor, and is a man of God. He loves Jesus. But I will say this, during that season, I got the best of Jack, but Wellspring, the church, didn't. And this is something he's spoken about publicly multiple times, so I, I feel freedom to share this. And Jack was going through an extremely hard season. He, he had lost his son to suicide. And it was a drug-induced suicide in December of 2000. It, this had sent his wife into a tailspin with alcohol. He didn't realize how bad it was with his wife when he started the church, and it was actually just getting worse. And so I, I took this step of faith, and then I got there and realized, oh man, this is a really messy situation. And as would naturally be, I don't think any anybody could have a, a wife who or a spouse who, for him, it was this would be what you call stage four alcoholism. This was any time could be the last time. And the stories are just uh, horrific. And you can imagine the kind of effect. It was all public. The church knew about it because it was to the stage. It wasn't in what they call the romance stage. You know, it's like learned all these stages where you can hide it. Mm-hmm. It was no longer hideable. And it was extremely painful. It was extremely messy. And in the midst of it, it, it was just not possible to lead the church well. And eventually, Jack stepped down. And that, on a practical level, was a big part of it. But, you know, I was I was in my 20s during this. I'm just it had huge ramifications on the church, on the staff, on everybody involved. Again, I got the best of Jack, but but the church really, really struggled. And so at the age of 30, when I took over the leadership of the church, there wasn't enough money to pay all the pastors. The church was in steep decline. It didn't seem as though uh, it was going to survive if there wasn't a big change. Just pretty much when it happened, Mm -hmm. it seemed like the change needed to happen. Or, or else it was going to fail. And it honestly is a miracle that it didn't. And this was part of that. It was good for me to bear the yoke. I, at the age of 30, I thought that since I was such an amazing leader, <laughs> <laughs> that I was going to turn things around immediately. And it didn't happen that way. I remember listening to a podcast at that time that, on church revitalization. And, and it said, you know, if you're really sharp 
and and if you're really faithful, they really they emphasize the latter more than sharp. Mm-hmm. If you're really faithful, after about seven years, you can start to turn a church around into and it can be healthy. And I remember thinking, yeah, but that's for JV pastors because <laughs> I'm really great. <laughs> you humbly thought, <laughs> and yeah, no no wonder. Geez, I needed I needed all the hardship I could get to wow. overcome that pride. <laughs> well, but I will tell you, I did love Jesus. And and I did walk with him and faithfulness in that period. And it, as it turns out, took about seven years. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> and and you know what the church needed? It didn't need some amazing mover and shaker of a leader. It needed a faithful pastor to love them. Mm. And that's what I did. I I laid my life down for that flock and and loved them with all my heart. And uh, for many years, mm. ten anyway. And after that, just a period of time things just started to turn and and by the time i departed from that church it was in a and had been in a place of just beautiful health and growth and which of course led to the next major step of faith yeah but you know in retrospect i can see it was a big step of faith at age 30 and and you know i think our motives are pretty much always mixed i think there was faith in there and i think there was also pride but the lord <laughs> the lord uses it all <laughs> yeah, that's such an amazing statement. You know, our motives are mixed. I don't know how they can't be many times. You've got the flesh, you've got the spirit. It's all mixed up. Yeah. Well, let me pivot here and just ask you some general questions about your own faith walk. I'm curious, what right now are you most passionate about? Hmm. A few things. I am passionate about fatherhood and in multiple ways. One with my own kids, I pray over them every single day, the same prayer. And it's got, it has about 10 different elements to the prayer and we all pray it together. But one of them is that all my children would grow up and love the Lord with all of their heart. And if if I live my life and at the end of it, all of my kids are passionate lovers of Jesus and whatever avenue of life they step into, I'll be happy with that. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll be able to die a happy man. And so that translates into spending time with pouring into Lots of Bible discussions, all the things that go into just being a good dad. I, I try to do, and and I'm sometimes a good dad and sometimes not. But I, I am passionate about fatherhood. But this also has a ministry perspective too, and that looks like making disciples. You know, Jack Jack did that with me. He spent so much time with me, and like I said, he's a father to me. And Paul tells the Corinthians, "You have many teachers, but not many fathers." And I think that's something that's really missing in the church today. We we know how to put people on an assembly line and run them through a program, and and programs have their place, and I'm in favor of them, but not when the programs supplant the Great Commission. They're supposed to supplement. They're supposed to to be an aid in fulfilling the Great Commission. But if if pastors and leaders only have time to run programs, then we're really just shuffling people through an assembly line. And and so I, I have a vision to see disciples who are making disciples, who are making disciples mm-hmm. a, a chain that extends generations through a church and beyond a church, ultimately reaching nations. And I just find that discipleship just always pays off. And at my last church, I had a, a worship leader and a small groups pastor who both were in my youth group 10 and 15 years prior. And they were just disciples of mine that stuck around and became part of the church. And others, other disciples I made, I sent around the world, planting churches and, and being part of missions. I think that's one way I make disciples of all nations. I invest in people and I, I don't know what sort of seed they are. I don't try to force that. I just pour water on it and I 
and I till the ground and I and I make sure the seed is taken care of. I plant Apollos waters, but God gives the increase. And sometimes when that seed grows up, it it becomes a preacher or a missionary. And and sometimes it just becomes a really great dad who is an accountant and maybe an elder in his church or 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 maybe not. But I, I let the seed become what it will become. But mm-hmm. uh, but I pour the life of God into it, and I and my life, and you know, Paul tells the Philippians, even if my life is being poured out as a drink offering, I rejoice with you all. And that's the way Paul did ministry. And the image he shares there of the pouring out, it's actually an act of worship. And and so I pour my life into people. It's an act of worship for me. Mm-hmm. I, I want to give my church. I want to give my kids. I want to give people certainly my wife, whom I'm to love as Christ loves the church. I want the laying down of my life for others to be an act of worship. Mm. How do you best hear from God? Well, I, I think for one, God speaks is through his word. And the most important way that he speaks is through his word. And what happens is if you start to learn the way God speaks through his word, you're in a good place to understand how he speaks by his spirit and ways beyond his word, which his word points to and affirms. But but I think that's a that's a big part of it. And so uh, every morning I wake up and I read the scripture and I meditate on it and I study it and I think about it and I journal about it. And then I'll open up my spirit too and I'll I'll journal and I'll I'll ask the Lord questions. You know, what do you want to do about this? Or Lord, what what do you want to do today? What do you want me to do today? And I I just try to open up my spirit. And so I have a a daily practice of listening to the Holy Spirit through his word and just for my day and for my life. And and so that's a big part of it. I'll also say, you know, coming back to the friendships, godly friendships, God speaks to me a lot through other people. Mm. And I think that's really important. But but I just find simply when I'm really prayerful and talking to Jesus, open spirit, and really walking in friendship with others, I just I tend to hear from God in those contexts. If I find myself hurried and rushed and cutting short time with God and cutting short meaningful relationships in the sense that not really spending time with people, just getting my busy work done, that's a that's a recipe for not hearing God. So I try not to let that happen. It's profound to me the power that you've mentioned over and over in this conversation about friendship with others mm-hmm. and how critical that is in relationship to your friendship with Christ as well. So one of the big takeaways I'm hearing is if you will dig into and just release yourself into relationships God has placed in front of you, in other words, what's in your hands right now, and just take the time to ask him, how do you want me to press into this? How do you want me to lean into this? That he'll show you, and as a result, you are going to find a joy and a peace and a power that heretofore, maybe you've never experienced. Is that fair? Absolutely. Totally agree. What would be something that if you could stand on a mountaintop and you could just say, hey, everyone, listen to this one thing I'm going to share with you, what would that be? What springs to mind? I would say that it really comes to a truth in the scripture, and that is the, the, the greatest truth I know is that Jesus loves me and he wants to be my friend. Mm-hmm. And he wants that for all of our viewers. And I, I think Jesus emphasizes the importance of this in John 15, 15, when he says, no longer do I call you servants. Instead, I've called you friends. And his reason for that is because a servant doesn't know his master's business, but a friend does. And so actually hearing the voice of God 
is part of friendship. And because think about it, you how can you be friends with somebody you can't hear from? And so now what's I think significant, extra significant about that passage, a few things. There are only two people in the Old Testament called a friend of God, only one directly, and that's Abraham. The second Chronicles, as well as Isaiah, he's called a friend of God. And and Moses, it says he spoke with God like a friend. So maybe we count that. But when Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, he's talking about a shift in salvation history. And this goes with John 13 to 17, basically just right before the end. Jesus having this conversation with his disciples, and and he's repeatedly saying, hey, I'm, I'm no longer going to be with you. I'm going to send the Spirit. I'm not going to be with you. I'm going to send the Spirit. So when Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, I call you friends, it comes in that context. And it comes in a context where Jesus is going to send his Spirit and communicate with us and, and show us the plans of the Father, that the servant doesn't have a the opportunity to hear. And so it's it's like he's saying what Abraham and Moses experienced as a sort of prototype of what was to come. This is actually the new reality for the people of God, not just servants, but friends who know their master's business. And so when the Spirit's poured out in Acts chapter 2, it's poured out in the context of prophecy. I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit and they'll prophesy. Prophesy. Throughout the scripture, the Holy Spirit and Revelation go together. And so everything we've been talking about with hearing God, back to my original risk of, of laying it all down and, and trying to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit, that all goes into friendship with God. And, and so I would just say, enjoy Jesus today. Enjoy him today. Enjoy him in the context of friendship with other people and make some space for him. And I think you'll get better and better at hearing his voice and you'll have a more fulfilling life. So mm. uh, more fulfilling life, uh, especially in the sense that you'll fulfill on your life. I think that's what I would share. How can people find out more about you, Michael, and your ministry? A couple of ways. Well, come September, I'll be the full-on every week preacher at Bridgeway Church. I say every week. I'll probably take a break every you know, four or five weeks, give somebody else a shot. But right now, I'm preaching about once or twice a month while Sam Storms continues to be the senior pastor, and then he can, he's going to retire in August. I, I've preached three or four times so far at Bridgeway, and you can you can check those out. The most common sort of weekly way in which people can be in touch with me is through our, our I say hour, I have a few co-hosts, but Theology Podcast. It's called uh, Remnant Radio. And our primary platform is YouTube. And right now we're showing Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday at 4 p.m., a different topic uh, each day. And so we interview pastors and theologians from all over the world. And we also, on Wednesdays, we have a show entirely focused on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so another disciple of Jack Deers is my Wednesday host. His name is Michael Miller. He and I are good friends. And then Josh Lewis is a, is a host. And so all the time we're putting out content. And and that's also shows in any audio podcast platform that you come across. So anyway, Remnant Radio and Bridgeway Church, that's pretty much the two ways. And then one of these days, I'll finish my book about the book of Revelation, but I'm crawling along on it. So um I don't know. It's probably going to be another year. That's great. Well, I so appreciate all that you've shared. Could you please pray for our listeners as we finish up? Love to. Thank you. Okay. Well, Heavenly Father, we come before you and we just love you so much because you loved us first and you gave your one and only son uh, for our sins. And through him, you give us the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. And Father, I pray for all of our viewers. I pray for those who are bearing the yoke while they are young. 
Father, mm. or maybe while they're old. I pray, Father, that, that you would come alongside them with those strong shoulders and bear their yoke with them. Jesus, you say, come to me, all who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. And I pray that they would know the rest of the Son. And I pray, Lord, that they would also know friendship with him, that they would enjoy Jesus, that you would open up their hearts to feeling his affections, as it says in Romans 5, 5, that God has poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. I pray that you would do that for our viewers, open their hearts to your affections, help them to enjoy you today, open up their spiritual ears that they might hear your voice and make space for you. And and Lord, I pray for the courage to take the risks that you call us to take. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Michael. So appreciate your time today. Absolutely. God bless you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. Please make sure you subscribe to the show and share this with someone you believe would be encouraged and motivated by these stories. Until next time, I'm Brian Robinson reminding you that the greatest decision you could ever make is to ask Jesus Christ to become the Lord of your life. If you haven't done that, read Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. Thanks again for listening.